that time again. Finally, a relatively quiet week in the NFL. It looks like the Arizona Cardinals have finally sorted out their QB situation. The Chiefs lose another elite weapon. In the NBA, we've got four competitive playoff series and it looks like the champs are back in business. Is James Harden really that guy? Is Nikola Jokic the best big man in the NBA? Can Kawhi Leonard and Kyrie Irving get their teams to the conference finals? And finally, in the Bruce Breakdown, we tackle a narrative about the Southeastern Conference in college football. So let's do it. Sit back, relax, and listen up to episode 23 of The Format. draft is over and now NFL teams are kind of settling in trying to round out rosters and get ready for the summer with uh, mini camps and training camps and obviously uh, preseason before going into the regular season in early September. Now I'm not going to take too much time really talking about the NFL. Things are a little quiet right now. Um, There's just a couple of stories that I wanted to touch on. So the first one um, with Kyler Murray taking number one overall by the Cardinals it looks like what well, we know, the Josh Rosen saga is finally over. Arizona traded Josh Rosen to the Dolphins where new head coach Brian Flores said that he's going to have to earn the starting spot. The Cardinals got a second round pick in this year's draft along with a fifth rounder in next year's draft in order to get rid of Rosen and send him to the Dolphins. Now, the Cardinals pretty much lost out on this deal because if you remember last year, They traded up in the draft to have the number 10 selection to pick Josh Rosen, but sometimes you have to sacrifice to get what you want. And obviously, as we know, Cliff Kingsbury's had his eye on Kyler Murray for a very long time now, and he finally got, you know, the guy who he thinks is going to be perfect to run his system. The second big story is that Chiefs All-Pro wide receiver Tyreek Hill has been suspended from team activities due to off-the-field issues. He's currently being investigated for allegations of child abuse. Now, if you'll remember, even before he was drafted, um, coming out, he had a domestic violence issue where he uh, reportedly punched his uh, pregnant fiance in the stomach and I believe choked her, which obviously is a a despicable deed. And uh, he was able, as far as we believe, to kind of get past that and, and remake his life and He's been an ultra-successful football player. Now, he was one of the best weapons in the league last year and MVP Patrick Mahomes' favorite target uh, with the Chiefs. Obviously, he was a devastating downfield threat and pretty much one of those guys you always had to account for anywhere he was on the field and anytime he touched the football. He looks like he's going to be the second elite weapon that the Chiefs are going to lose in as many seasons to domestic violence issues. We know that 
last season, All-Pro running back Kareem Hunt was cut from the team after footage emerged of him beating up a woman in a hotel hallway. Now, I don't know what's going on with these guys, or I don't know what's going on with the evaluation and draft process in Kansas City, but something's not right. I guess the best thing about it is that when they find out they have these type of guys on their teams, they're taking immediate issue so that they don't have these type of players around. In terms of trying to replace as much as possible, right? In terms of trying to replace Tyreek Hill and replace his production, in the second round, the Chiefs drafted speedster out of University of Georgia, Mercole Hardman. Now, Hardman is almost as fast as Tyreek Hill, who they coincidentally called Cheetah. That should tell you how fast the guy is, right? But realistically, there are few, if any, players in NFL history as fast on the field as Tyreek Hill. The guy is lightning. But uh, Mercole Hardman, this rookie out of Georgia, he's pretty fast himself. He was clocked in the 40 at running 4.33 seconds compared to Tyreek Hill's 4.29. So that's pretty good. He's not quite the overall athlete Tyreek Hill is. If you look down his measurables, the three-cone drill and the shuttle drill, the uh, broad jump, the uh, vertical leap, and of course the 40 time, he's all slightly behind Tyreek Hill in each category. But again, Tyreek Hill is just one of those ridiculously freakish athletes that's just off the charts and everything. But Hardman is an outstanding athlete himself. Now, no one is saying that this rookie is going to step in and do what Tyreek Hill has been doing all this time. But some of his physical tools will allow the Chiefs to continue to stretch the field the way they have been and, you know, put them in a position where they don't have to deviate too much from the offensive system they've been running. So we're going to kind of wait to see how he plays out and what he's able to do and how quickly he's able to adjust to the learning curve and whether or not he can stand up to the pressure, realistically or not, of the expectations that are going to be on him stepping into Cheetah's shoes. So those are the two main stories I wanted to talk about on the NFL side, but a quick draft note. The SEC had a tremendous draft, um, setting records for draftees, and I'll get to that later on. But just wanted to kind of mention something I thought was cool. Ten Notre Dame players are on NFL rosters now following the draft. They had six players drafted and four undrafted free agents get signed immediately following. Now, if you look at that, that's over 9% of the 2018 Notre Dame roster. And that's pretty great for a program that has a reputation for not having athletes or great players anymore. Just a thought. So I'm going to start out this NBA segment here with what I think is a major announcement. So we know that for a while now, there's been this so-called debate. I really don't think it's a debate, but a so-called debate, which, you know, is, is good for discussion in, in a lot of forums, whether it's in the sports media or even in the barbershop or on the block or whatever between, you know, who's the GOAT, LeBron or Michael Jordan. As I said, I think that's even a ridiculous question to ask, but... Regardless, um, with the way Kevin Durant is playing right now, he's bringing himself into the discussion on not only who the best player in the world is, but also those invariable uh, comparisons to Michael Jordan and, of course, the GOAT discussion, right? So here it is. 
this is what I've come up with after doing a whole lot of thought on it. Um, it probably takes away any ability for me to have continued discussion on the topic, but it's just something I can't take anymore. So in all seriousness, I know that the debate has been going on for a long time, but realistically, here's my definitive stance on the question. The question being, who is the GOAT, Michael Jordan or LeBron James, or is it even Kevin Durant working his way into the discussion, which I will say right now, no, he's not. But anyway, this is very simple. I don't believe I will ever be able to put anyone ahead of Michael Jordan, no matter what they accomplish in their career. Now, let me caveat that by saying, unless the current rules change. What do I mean by that? I mean, until we get out of an era where you have so many players averaging 25 or more points per game because defense has been legislated out of NBA basketball in their effort to make the game more fan-friendly, introduce more freedom of movement, and to allow the superstar players to get off, it has degraded the quality of what it means to be an elite scorer in the NBA. As well, because there's an era where the scoring numbers are uh, artificially inflated because so many three-pointers are being shot, it's hard to tell who the elite scorers really are. So, until, and I doubt they ever will, but until the NBA rules change to allow more defense and, you know, make the game a little more even, I'll never be able to place anyone ahead of Michael Jordan. And it's not just about how great MJ was or or nostalgia on my part because I saw him play live for many years, not just on YouTube. It's about what he had to go through to cement that level of greatness. He didn't have to run and form super teams with anyone else. No, he stayed where he was and built himself and built his squad to get to the level that he achieved. Let's look at it this way, right? First, everyone talks about how he couldn't win in the playoffs until Scottie Pippen came. Well, that's also a false narrative, but we'll get to that. Um, His first two playoff runs, uh, 84 and 86, he played... The world champion Boston Celtics, who both teams are regarded, the 84 Celtics and 86 Celtics, among the top 10, and the 86 Celtics are a top 5 championship team of all time. So if you look at the roster Michael Jordan had on those Bulls teams going against those legendary teams, both cases I believe he averaged over 40 for those series. So he did everything he could do to try and carry him, but those were just all-time great teams that knocked him out of the playoffs. But that's fine. Then in 87, along comes Scottie Pippen, right? So we always like to say, oh, he couldn't win until he got Scottie. Well, he had Scottie and still couldn't get over the hump and get into the finals until 1991. So um, 88 and 89, he had to go up against the Bad Boy Pistons, another team which is one of the all-time great championship teams ever, right? Top 10. This is a team that went to the finals three years in a row, won the championship two out of three years and could have three-peated if uh, they didn't get robbed on a phantom call against Bill Lambeer defending Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in game six and 88 after Isaiah Thomas had just set a finals quarter scoring record with 25 points in the third on a severely sprained ankle the size of a baseball. But the point is, first Michael Jordan had to go through the championship Celtics. Then he had to go through the championship Pistons. 
And for those who are going to say he had to wait till the Pistons got old, yeah, that's another lie that Bron Sexuals like to tell, right? The fact is, when he finally got past the Pistons, the Pistons' average age on that roster was only 29 years old. So the narrative that he had to wait for the Pistons to get old, yeah, that's not true either. Um, so once he got past those teams and he went into the finals, he had to meet up with Magic Johnson, the legend, who was already a five-time champion, and he beat him. Now, once Michael Jordan started winning championships, one of the biggest things is that differentiates him between other champions. Once he started winning, nobody else could, right? So he had the first three-peat. Uh, he beats Magic Johnson. Then in the second year of the three-peat, he beats Clyde Drexler, another dream teamer and all-time 50 greatest. Then in the third leg of that first three-peat, he beats Charles Barkley and I believe the 62-win Phoenix Suns, right? That was a team that had the MVP on it, had multiple all-stars, right? So this other narrative that Michael Jordan beat bad teams in the finals, yeah, we could hold that too because those were teams that had tremendous amounts of talent on them. The second three-peat, he beats uh, a young Gary Payton, who is the only other nine-time first-team all-defensive NBA player, right? And one of the best two-way perimeter players of all time, along with Sean Kemp, who was also an all-NBA forward. Okay, so he beats them with the Seattle Supersonics in 96. Following that, he goes back-to-back -back and beats the Utah Jazz, featuring... One of the best one-two punches in history, second all-time leading scorer, Carl Malone, and first all-time assister, John Stockton, who is one of the top five point guards who ever played. So now, again, narrative, Michael Jordan beat bad teams in the finals, yet lies. And the fact is, once he started winning, no one else could. Now, Hakeem Olajuwon, you know, had a Herculean effort in 1994 to win his first championship when Michael Jordan was off playing baseball. And then, of course, Clyde Drexler was traded to the Rockets in 95, and he and Elijah Wan led them to the second of back-to-back -back championships in 1995. So it took a hiatus from the NBA for someone else to get a championship when Michael Jordan was in his prime. So all these are reasons why I can't, in good conscience, put anyone ahead of Michael Jordan as the GOAT. He's the greatest two-way player of all time in terms of being one of the greatest on-ball defenders, as well as arguably the greatest offensive player. And, you know, clearly he was just a, a, a dominant player on the floor in terms of the winning, okay? So, all those reasons, MJ is the GOAT and will remain the GOAT, greatest of all time, until either the rules or the game changes. All right, bringing it forward, going to get into some good playoff talk. The NBA playoffs just keep getting better, and I have said it ad nauseum. The NBA playoffs are just fine without LeBron James. That being said, I'm not going to mention him again for the rest of this segment. I'm loving how we're getting an opportunity to really see other players, and they're playing amazing basketball, and, and there's some incredibly competitive series, and these guys are finally getting the shine that they should get. Kawhi Leonard is doing work up north, and we're going to talk about him. Embiid, Jimmy Buckets, and the rest of the 76ers are fighting for their lives in their second-round playoff series against Toronto. Kevin Durant, another guy playing out of this world, and pretty much cemented his position as the best player on earth. James Harden and the Rockets are whining and begging 
And now they have to win four out of five games in their series against Golden State. Yeah, they're in big trouble. Nikola Jokic in Denver is showing out and showing why he's one of the best big men in the game. There might be a legitimate argument for him being the most skilled big man in the game. He can shoot out to three, even though his average is down this season. He can handle, pass the rock, and has a post game with amazing footwork. He's almost a complete package. On the season, he averaged 20 points per game, 10 rebounds a game, 7 assists a game, while getting the Denver Nuggets to the second seed in the, in the West. And he's upped all that production in the playoffs to 25 points, 12 rebounds, and 9 assists, and shooting 37% on threes, 90% from the free throw line, and 50% from the field. Jokic is getting busy. Those are serious numbers. And do I really need to talk about Damian Lillard? 34 points, 6 assists per game this postseason, 46% from 3 and 48% from the floor. We got a great bunch of playoff series here. So I'm going to talk a little bit about each one, and I'm going to start with uh, Denver and Portland. You have the Nuggets and the Blazers. So this series is tied uh, 1-1 after the first two games in Denver, who has home court advantage in the series. So Damian Lillard, who I just talked about, has kind of calmed down a bit after averaging uh, 34 points per game in the first round. His scoring in this round is down to 26 points per game, and he's shooting less than 45% from the field, and his three-point shot is really struggling so far. This series going over only 27% from three. I think the fair assumption is that he's going to be able to pick things up, but for right now, he's really struggling. But that said, his teammates are really helping him along by picking up the slack. This could be another seven-game series, which the NBA loves. Obviously, you know, you get more eyeballs on the TV, you get more ad revenue, and, you know, you get more players to market, right? And fans should love it, too, because at the end of the day, they're getting to see really great basketball. But I think for me, the key for the Blazers this postseason is C.J. McCollum. He isn't getting much attention because Damian Lillard's play this postseason is, has been so crazy. But his numbers are actually up from the regular season. He's scoring about 23 points per game in the playoffs and shooting 42% from three. So Dame Lillard is not the only one on that team in that backcourt who's lighting it up. Also, Ennis Cantor is really contributing at the fourth spot. So with uh, Nurkic out for the rest of the year, he's boosted his production. And he's getting about 15 points a game and 10 rebounds a game in the postseason. So he's really being a solid contributor on his team. He's not much on the defensive end against Jokic, but that's never really been Cantor's strong suit. He is doing what a traditional power forward is supposed to do. He's scoring in the paint, and he's rebounding the basketball. So the key for me to really good and great teams are role players recognizing their roles, playing them as well as they can, and even more than that, stepping up when they need to. So the next question in this series, is Jokic really making a case for being the most big the most skilled big man in the league. At least once a game, he's doing something that's making you say, wow, whether it's an amazing pass or some amazing post move with up and unders, pivots, and great footwork. He leads the break. He hits the glass. He can dribble, pass, and shoot. And one of the things that makes him tremendously skilled is that he doesn't need very specific situations to be able to do those things. He doesn't need circumstances manufacturing his production. That, to me, is the mark of a truly skilled basketball player. Game three should be awesome. And the scary thing is, we're still waiting for Dame Lillard to really break out in this series. 
if and when he explodes, the Nuggets might not have enough to keep up. So on to Golden State Warriors, the defending champions, and the Houston Rockets, who called them out after their first-round series win and said they wanted to play them. Let's be real here. I'm going to say three words on this series. Houston is soft. Their whole offense is built on a gimmick and not really playing smart basketball. This offense was innovative when Mike D'Antoni coached it in the mid-2000s, around 2006-2007, with the seven seconds or less Phoenix Suns, right? You could say that it was either innovative or you could say it was lazy. I guess it depends on how you look at it, right? You want very short offensive possessions. You want to get as many threes up as you can because analytically, the more threes you take, the more you will make. And 30 cent, 33% me, of made three-pointers equals 50% of made two-pointers just by the mathematics. So to me, D'Antonio seems to be pretty limited when it comes to the X's and O's of coaching basketball. His teams generally don't defend. They shoot tons of threes, do a lot of pick and rolls, and try to draw fouls. That doesn't seem like it's, you know, excellent uh, offensive coaching to me. Now, you look at James Harden. James Harden has been whining tremendously. He's had a historic season in terms of his production. He averaged 36 points a game, which is like the third most in the last 40 or 50 years. He's had 50-point triple-doubles. I think there was a 60-point triple-double in there. He had a 38-game streak of 30 points or more. Just historic overall. All-time great season. But even with that, he's still complaining. I just want a fair chance, man. Uh, call the game how it's supposed to be called, and, and, and that's it. And I'll live with the results. Man, are you really serious right now? He's constantly getting away with things. He's traveling. He's drawing fake fouls that if you look at the replay, nobody touched him. He's literally holding the defender's arm, and then when he tries to go around him, He'll throw up his hands and get the foul call. But now he isn't getting the calls he wants, and he's crying about it. What he's getting right now is the exact same things his defenders have been suffering from all season, i.e. doing the best they can and getting hit with BS calls or no calls. It, it's ridiculous. Now, legends are made in the playoffs. And if you look at it, Harden has never really stepped up big in the postseason. He is a better regular season guy, and there's a lot of players like that littered throughout NBA history. I'm not sure how there's any argument whatsoever for him as the best player in the league. Is he that guy? No way, no how. So the Warriors aren't even playing their best in this series, and they're already up two to nothing. I'm not saying they're going to sweep, but I don't see any way the Rockets can beat the champions four out of five games. I just don't. They're not mentally tough enough. And again, Chris Paul will come up short in the playoffs because that's what he does. Now, there have been other all-timers who couldn't win a title. But to me, something about Chris Paul is just different. It's whether he has bad games or whether he gets hurt or whatever. Somehow, he always manages to come up short in the playoffs. And that's just undeniable. I'm not sure what it is. What I can say, though... Is obviously Game 3 Saturday night is an absolute must win for Houston. I really think this series is already over because, as I said, I do not believe that the Rockets can beat the Warriors four out of five games. Um, what we also need to look at, Steph Curry or Klay Thompson, neither one has exploded yet in this series. They both have little nagging injuries, but 
We know both of them can detonate at any given time. Those two dudes are atom bombs on the court. When they go off, they go off. And um, neither one has really exploded yet. So we have to look out for that. At any given time, you got a player there who can knock down 10 threes and have about 40 points in a game. So we, we definitely need to, to watch out for that. And here's the thing. Um, again, Golden State hasn't played their best yet. And Houston is probably saying, well, neither have we. But they better be worried about it. And even though they shoot a ton of threes, they don't have nearly as much high-end firepower. And honestly, you just can't count on CP3 in the playoffs. So moving on to the Celtics and Bucks series. This should be one that goes six or seven games. Even after an impressive win in game one on the Bucks floor, I'm honestly still not sure um, about how the Celtics are currently constructed. If you've been listening to this pod in previous episodes, you know I'm not high on Kyrie Irving on this team and no matter what anyone says, I don't think this team is better with him because the offensive flow is damaged without him. Yes, he's a guy who can get his own shot, and if he wants to, he can get other people involved. But to me, if you look at it, the numbers across the board are generally down when he's on the floor. There's less ball movement, less assists, blah, 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 blah. But um, we saw they were able to sweep in the first round albeit against a badly depleted Indiana team. And uh, they were able to get a convincing win in the first game against Milwaukee, but then they got blasted in the second game and uh, Kyrie Irving was only four for 18 from the floor. Now, nobody's saying that he's going to continue to shoot that way, but uh, well, hopefully he steps it up, right? Um, They are a very good team and very well coached, but it's a tough spot to try and deal with uh, the Bucks based on how they're built in terms of Giannis's ability to attack the basket along with the Bucks' ability to shoot threes around him. When you're trying to defend that team, you kind of got to pick your poison, whether it's stop Giannis or stop the three-point shooters. But if the threes are falling, there's nothing you can do because if you try to get out there and stay on them, you're opening up lanes and making it a lot harder for help defense on Giannis going towards the rim. So, when the threes are falling and Giannis gets his, that's almost an unbeatable combo for the Bucks. Uh, a huge key for Boston, though, or I guess a point of concern, maybe, depends on your viewpoint. Where is Jason Tatum? He was averaging almost 20 in the first round, but through the first two games of this series, he seems to have completely disappeared. If the Celtics think that they have a chance of winning this series, they need him to show up in a big way. We saw what he was able to do in the playoffs with a tremendous run last year, um, getting all the way to Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Finals. But at the end of the day, they're going to need much more production than they're getting from him right now. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, Kyrie Irving needs to come up bigger than the 4-for-18 game that he had in Game 2 when they go to Boston and he's back at home for Game 3. Now, I know he's a scoring guard. But I think maybe he needs to try to get the offense going, get get his teammates involved first, then take over down the stretch with the big baskets that we know he's capable of getting. Um, honestly, though, I don't really think he's wired that way. I don't think that's the way he thinks. I don't think that's the way he plays. If assists come along in the flow of him getting his, he'll get them. But he does not look to set other guys up first. 
I just don't feel like he has that kind of leadership thing that all the other all-time great point guards had. He does look for his own shot first. But clearly, the pure point guard is a thing of the past. You're not going to find any more Stocktons or Jason Kidds or even Rajon Rondo. He's probably last of a dying breed on that. Um, scoring guards are the way that the game is played now. And the Bucks should be the favorite here, but the Celtics can still be dangerous. And if Tatum shows up, all bets are off. So the final series I want to talk about is the 76ers and the Raptors. And I'm not going to take too much time on this one. And I actually thought this was probably the most evenly matched series in either conference. And if you remember, I actually picked the 76ers to win the Eastern Conference and represent them in the NBA Finals. I was kind of shaky on that after game one. Kawhi Leonard is another player playing out of his mind this postseason, averaging 31 points and uh, seven rebounds a game on 57% from the floor and 47% from three. That makes no sense how this guy is going to work. Joel Embiid for this Philadelphia 76ers has been relatively held in check and he's way down from his season averages in this series, only averaging 14 and seven boards so far. Now, they're going to need much more from him if they're going to win this thing. He can be uh, one of the dominant, if not most dominant, bigs in the league when he's at his best, but he's going to have to give much more production than we're getting. Now, in his defense, uh, they said he was sick in game two, some sort of stomach virus or something like that, but he's definitely going to have to step it up starting tonight. Uh, ben Simmons is even worse, averaging only 10 points and four assists. After 16 and 8, you know, during the regular season. That's not what we need from him at all if you're Philadelphia. Um, the worst case scenario for Philadelphia, though, is to have their two best players playing this badly and still being tied in the series. So maybe if you're Philadelphia, you're happy you got out of there with a split. Um, game 3 is back on their home court tonight. And Toronto really needs to be worried because if a few shots start falling at home, and those sixes with all those scoring options, they become a real problem. As we know, they're the only team in NBA history to have uh, five players or more, five players on the roster average 17 points or more per game in a season. And once the threes really start falling, Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons will kind of get more room. Uh, the, the Raptors won't be able to pack the paint as much, and they'll be able to go downhill, attack the basket a lot more, and Bede will have more options to kind of set up shop on the low block and go to work down there. Uh, so I'm looking at Philly to take the lead in the series tonight, possibly take control. You know Kawhi Leonard is going to do his thing, but at the same time, he's going to need more help from his teammates. Kyle Lowry is from Philly, so we're going to see what kind of game he has. Unfortunately, he has not been a great playoff performer in his career, but maybe the home cooking will uh, do him some good and help him. Uh, really produce and put up some numbers. I gave you fair warning, beware. beware. I gave you fair warning, beware. beware. Before we get up out of here, you know what time it is. It's time for the Bruce. In light of the NFL draft just having passed a couple of days ago and uh, some interesting notes coming up and uh, having taken place, 
I want to talk to you a little bit about a college football subject here. So here it is. The SEC, the Southeastern Conference, is the best college in conference football, right? The SEC has the best players, right? The SEC sends the best and the most players to the NFL, right? Are those truly definitive statements? Or are they just groupthink? Are they just something that a bunch of people say so a bunch of people decide are true? Now, there is a lot of propaganda and SEC bias when it comes to college football fans and the media. Obviously, in this part of the country, college football is probably the biggest sport. Uh, I wouldn't say probably, without a doubt, the biggest, most popular sport. They love it. And realistically, the conference is extremely successful. And, uh, you know, they do really well, have tremendous athletes and everything. But is it definitive that they're the best they send the best players to the league, so on and so forth. Now, I'm just going to try and make you think a little bit here. I'm not trying to say the SEC isn't great or that they don't have great players or that they don't send a bunch of guys to the NFL. I'm just saying that there's evidence proving that for all of that, there's nothing definitive saying that their players are by far the best and that their conference is the best. So listen to this. In the college football playoff era, which is five years deep now. The SEC does have two championships, but there's three titles they didn't get, and both of those titles come from one school. So like most conferences, you might be able to argue that the SEC is top-heavy because the bad teams in the conference are as bad as they get. Anyways, this is a kind of interesting thing to think about. The SEC official Twitter account was very happy to announce that yet again, the Southeastern Conference, which as I said, is widely regarded as the best in college football, led all conferences with 64 players taken in the 2019 NFL Draft. And I believe that's a record for a single conference. And that is an awesome number of draftees from a single conference, and it's the most in the modern draft era. And it also confirms the opinion of many people that the SEC is the best conference in college football. But I think our old friend Lee Corso might have something to say about that. Not so fast, my friend. <laughs> to further examine whether or not the SEC is as dominant with players as we believe it to be, let's kind of look at their performance on the next level. So if you look at the uh, 2018 NFL All-Pro selections, the SEC conference did very well with 13 selections. So that, that's pretty good on the next level, right? Except they were actually behind the Big Ten that had 15 All-Pro selections. Okay, still, second is not bad. Although second doesn't really add up if you have the media and fans screaming that the SEC is without a doubt the superior conference. But that's fine. Let's look at something else. If you want to know who is the absolute best of the best in NFL history, you look to the Hall of Fame. Now, for the so-called hands-down best conference which makes players, maybe someone can explain the following numbers to me. If you break down the Hall of Fame by conference, you know what, let's just even make it Power 5 conferences, which do have the most players in the Hall of Fame. The SEC is fourth. Let me repeat that. Not one, not two, not three. Fourth in terms of most players selected to the Hall of Fame behind the Big Ten, the ACC, and the Pac-12. For a little context, the Big Ten has 65 players all-time inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. The ACC has 41, 
and they're tied with the Pac-12 at 41, and that puts the SEC at a distant fourth place with only 31. Okay, that's fine. You still don't believe me? Let's take an example of a particular school. I think I'll use Florida because I live in Florida and the Gators come to mind quickly. So I have a lot of friends, obviously, in this area, good friends who are go Gators all day. So if you're listening, here we go. <laughs> of all the players the Gators have sent to the NFL, and they have sent a lot of players. So great program. When it comes to the most important position, quarterback, they're easily the worst of all the big schools in the state, being Florida State, Miami, and Florida. As a matter of fact, their best QB, who is probably Tim Tebow, isn't even as good as the best quarterback from the school that most people would presume to be like Florida's little brother, UCF. The Gators haven't even had a single QB on the NFL level who's been better than Dante Culpepper. And that's just a fact. If you don't believe me, you can go check the numbers. For all the speedy, big play wide receivers that the Gators have had, they have not had one better or more productive on the NFL level than Brandon Marshall, who also went UCF, the little brother. That's interesting. I won't even bring up the U down south, who has arguably the most talented rosters in the history of college football. The point here is the SEC may be great, not they may be great, they are great. But a lot of the belief that they're far and away just better than everyone else, it just isn't true on the next level, and the numbers show it. They're not the only conference that plays college football in America. There's a lot of great players throughout this country. Other conferences are really good too, and if the SEC would get out of their own backyard and play some legitimate out-of-conference away games, we might see some different results. At the end of the day, they are still getting more players drafted than anyone else. That's inarguable. They are, for the most part, dominating in terms of selections to the four-team college football playoff. That's inarguable. Now, that said, since there's no real criteria as to how a team gets selected, at least no real criteria that we are privy to, we don't know if there's a large amount of bias taking, uh, you know, taking a, a big part of the decision making there. Or we don't know if legitimately these teams are just the best. But at the end of the day, the SEC does have two out of five of the college football playoff championships that also can't be argued. Again, the point I'm trying to make, it is not definitive that the SEC is the best conference and makes the best players. So that's all I got today for the Bruce Breakdown. That's all I got for this episode of the format, episode 23. Thanks for listening with me again. You know what it is. Uh, you can catch me on Twitter, at Bruce F.A. Hope. You can catch me on Instagram, at The Format Podcast. And you know what to do over there. Uh, leave me a note if you like what I'm saying. Leave me a note if you disagree with what I'm saying. Uh, something I forgot. Something I could do better. Something you want to hear me talk more about. Ideas for next week's show. All of that. If you enjoyed the pod and you have friends who love sports talk, then uh, share the pod with them. Let's continue to try and get it out to as many people as we can. So, again, thanks for listening. And uh, that's it. I'm out. Peace.